Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Gruo, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show features my dynamic conversation with actor, activist, and singer-songwriter Kate Nash. We discuss how Kate uses art to connect with her fans from all walks of life and how she's learned to use her voice to fight for change. Kate's industry insights are eye-opening, and I hope this episode will leave you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. Today's guest, Kate Nash, has a storied career which spans multiple disciplines and genres. While many of you may know Kate from her success in the music industry, others may recognize her as Rhonda Britannica Richardson from the hit Netflix show, Glow. Despite her impressive resume, Kate's success did not come easily. As a teenager, Kate attended the Brit School, a performing arts and technology school in London, funded by the British Record Industry Trust. Kate originally attended in hopes of becoming an actress, but after being rejected by university drama schools, Kate turned her focus to music. Kate's first single, Foundations, was released in 2007 and reached number two on the UK charts. Later that year, Kate released her album, Made of Bricks, which rocketed to the top of the UK charts. Thanks to the success of Foundations and Made of Bricks, Kate won the Best British Female Artist Award at the Brit Awards in 2008 and has since released three more albums. But Kate's journey did not end there. Throughout the next decade, Kate used her platform to combat sexism in the music industry and fight for women's rights around the world. After the 2012 arrest of the Russian punk band Pussy Riot, Kate publicly defended the group's stance against Russian President Vladimir Putin and wrote the song Free My Pussy in their honor. Impressively, Kate has also been an ardent advocate for those suffering from mental illness. Kate has struggled with OCD and anxiety in the past and now uses these experiences to help others in their journeys with mental illness. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kate Nash. I want to start with your fans. You have a very specific fan set of, of people who have found you, gravitate to you, and find themselves putting you on their body with tattoos yeah. and listening to you in bad breakups. Yeah. And you are the light that gets them out of dark places. So let's start with your fans. Okay. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is my first shows when you start to sort of recognize your fans and realize that you have a fan base you know after you've played a few shows and they kind of start to have a look and a feel like the same types of people are coming to see you and I first noticed that I just had so many young girls and they would be in the same kind of dress as me and like cut their hair to look like me and that was like a really interesting thing to notice and I remember feeling really aware once I went from 100 and 200 cap venues to suddenly jumping up to like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 cap venues and me thinking, oh, how do I connect with these people? There's so many and it's so important for me to be able to connect with them. And I think I made efforts to do that because it was overwhelming for me otherwise to kind of just be in a big room. And one of the first things that I noticed they all started doing was like breaking up with their boyfriends and telling me it was because of my songs. You're so empowering. <laughs> Which is funny and sorry to all their ex-boyfriends out there. But then I would also see fans after shows and they would 
be very open with me and tell me really, really personal things. And, and I would end up being there after shows talking for hours with fans, you know, when it would go from a gig into a nightclub, that sort of venue. And I'd just be hanging out with fans and they'd be like telling me all this really personal stuff. And I realized that people obviously were like comfortable with me. I remember that I have this vision of this one girl who came to one of my shows once somewhere in the UK. She was sort of a Tim Burton goth girl with her black and white stripy socks up to her knees and a tutu and a Nightmare Before Christmas shirt. And she had her arms up in the air in like the front row during the gig and was just waving them around. And she had loads of scars on her arms from self-harming. And I thought, how amazing is this? She was so free and waving her arms around in the crowd and obviously felt safe enough to do that. And now that really stuck with me. Since seeing stuff like that and people being so vulnerable with me, I've wanted to nurture that relationship and create a safe space for, I mean, that's such a thrown around thing, a safe space. What is that? But just really trying to make efforts with people to make sure they do feel welcome and that everybody's welcome at my shows. And and I think they really are. They're so generous with each other. I'll get a letter torn in half from someone in Birmingham that's for a fan in Germany that they've made friends with online and I have to read the letter when I put them both <laughs> together. <laughs> and boxes decorated with T-shirts made with like my dogs and my bunny rabbit on and like really personal, really heartfelt, scarves knitted you know I remember this guy who was like this skater dude and he would come on his own and film shows and give me discs of the whole gig filmed and then he's like I also make skate films and and then he like would like knit me pink and yellow striped scarves and I just love that there's this feeling of people can really be themselves and people are really open with me about connecting with something honest in my lyrics. And this girl that I met in Denver, who I noticed that all of us, all my the girls in my band, we all were like, oh my God, did you see her during Nicest Thing? She was sobbing. My bassist, Emma, who's so sweet, said she was like, I almost had to run down there and give her a hug and make her a cup of tea. Like, I was really worried about her. And she'd come all the way from... Alaska and stayed with her grandparents who lived in a town nearby because her and her sister had loved my music and her sister had died and as soon as she found out my show was happening she knew she had to be there for her sister and it's it's so emotional the relationship between a musician and fan I think because you're there with people through some very serious moments of their life either fun times and parties or weddings or when someone has died or when you've gone through a breakup, when you're stressed out, like as a fan of music myself, I know that I lean on music when I have strong emotions. It feels like a responsibility to kind of nurture that, you know, it's a really amazing relationship because they know me very intimately and I don't necessarily know them, but I kind of feel like I do in a weird way because of how well they know me. It's it's a weird kind of invisible string between us that is kind of hard to explain, but I find it like very important. I want to go back to, you said safe space and I, I don't think you should minimize it Yeah, because I think <laughs> the people who are going to listen to this podcast, I think have come to us as a safe space. Yeah, yeah. And as an artist, you provide this this cocoon for people to feel that they can heal. So clearly your lyrics are a place that make people feel themselves when maybe the world doesn't. Yeah. But it's because you're so vulnerable in your lyrics. So can you talk about the vulnerability 
that you strive to create in your own music and show the best parts of themselves? I try to be truthful. And I think that you have a choice as an artist. You have to think about how you look and what your art is going to mean and how it's going to be presented in the world and what it's going to mean about how people see you, how the media portrays you, how the world is going to view you and people are going to review it and talk about it and talk about you and make an opinion about you. And I think that sometimes the choice is what do I want to be perceived as? I think I've always just gone... I want to be really truthful and I don't want to make choices based on what I think is cool or what I think will look great or, I mean, there's an element of that with imagery and videos and photos and stuff. When it comes to my actual music, I don't want to be led by what other people will think of me. I want to write songs that are really true to how I'm feeling right now and what I want to be and how I want to express myself. Um, And I always choose that. And I think that that being really genuine and, and trying to lead with like authenticity instead of what other people might think of you means that you open a door to some vulnerable people that are maybe not feeling represented everywhere they look and feeling left out and like, oh, I don't kind of fit into what's cool or I don't really connect with that, you know. And I think that's like across the board, all types of art that can have audiences for different reasons. And there's definitely a place sometimes for something that's just like cool. Or I, I made this comparison recently when I was talking about the musical that I'm working on when we were talking about powered women and what's a genuine way to like make these characters empowered. You've got Wonder Woman and you've got Promising Young Woman. And these are like very different ends of the spectrum. And for me, when I watch Wonder Woman, I'm not, really feeling empowered. I think it's great and it's a, you know, a big superhero movie, but I don't feel like a superhero. Like it's a fantasy, right? And that's fun for certain moments. But then when I watch Promising Young Woman, I'm like, oh my God, a new era of film for women where we're not like just saying, we'll do it the men's way and slap a woman on it. And because we love women now, it's like, this is real and it's quite scary. And it's showing like the the reality and the horror of that. But I find that empowering because I'm like, oh my God, finally we're telling the truth. That's so cool. That's a big step. I feel kind of free in a way from that because I feel like the world isn't trying to like tiptoe around some of these scary realities. And so I think that sometimes when you're just honest and you say, oh, the reality is this, then people go, oh my God, I feel relieved to hear someone talking about the truth because I don't want the the shiny picture is great sometimes, but it's not really like relatable to me and it doesn't really help me in my life when I feel unempowered and the difficult things I'm really going through when I like, I wish I could put on a, a superhero suit and be Wonder Woman, but it doesn't really work like that for me. I think that like authenticity just goes so much further when you're trying to actually connect and when you're trying to make art that really speaks to people. When you speak of your audience and your fans of being outsiders, you know, for a lot of those outsiders, it's gender issues, sexual identity issues. It's feeling marginalized and you're their ally. You're their advocate. Do you feel like an outsider yourself? You connect with them through songs. Like where does that fusion come together? I mean, I've always been like pretty confident person. I I would make best friends in the queue for the library and then go to the swimming pool and have three new best friends. I wanted to like wear whatever I wanted to wear when I was younger and um, I've never had a problem like feeling confident in myself, but I've definitely felt as a teenager, I would sometimes be embarrassed or I went through being bullied a little bit later when I was like 16, 17. 
and getting really embarrassed about things like that. And then in terms of entering the music industry, when you put yourself out there, you definitely become an outsider, whether you are or not, because people will critique you and it can be brutal. And I started putting out music when I was 18 and it was a very bad time for tabloids. I think it's a bit different now. I've had everything from death threats to the Daily Mail highlighting my acne to calling me too fat and too ugly to be a pop star. And the way they would talk about my music was so patronizing, which I noticed early on as well as a kind of sexist because I felt like they were saying because I was a teenage girl, it was like silly diary writings, like, and then my male peers of the same age would be legends from their first albums. And I thought that's really interesting that I'm this like silly little teenage girl. I remember a journalist telling me that I was one of the only pop stars that would admit they were a feminist in 2009 or 10. And they said they, uh, they would get interrupted by publicists back then, that if they asked the artist who are feminist, the publicists would interrupt and be like, you are not allowed to ask her that. Crazy. But basically Beyonce and Taylor Swift made feminism mainstream, like in the pop world. And now it's like not considered a crazy thing at all. But it's so funny that only in 2009 and 10, it was such a mad thing for me to admit. <laughs> Let me ask you, this is October's so uh, National Bully Month. And you touched on bullying when you were in your late teens. Yeah. But it sounds like you also got bullied by the industry. Yeah. So talk about both. Talk about what it was like to be bullied by kids in school, but also to be bullied by people who have power or, yeah. or run newspapers or yeah. the paparazzi. Those both probably are so debilitating. I remember in school, it was in, I was doing theatre. I was good at what I was doing and I auditioned and got into this theatre group and then this group of people just didn't like me for that and would like just do silly school things. Like I got locked in a cupboard once, which is really horrible. (laughs) For some reason then I struggled with it in ways, but I also, I can get fire in my belly about stuff like that sometimes. And I was like, I'll just be really, really good at this monologue. I'll just do the best performance of the year then. Well, I get a bit of like, fuck you, you know, confidence sometimes when someone messes with me and then maybe deal with some of the confidence issues later. But in the moment I can be like, all right, challenge me to a duel. You'll regret this till the day you die. (laughs) You were were classically trained at the Brit School. And I know that some other phenomenal folks that went there were Amy Winehouse. So what was that like to be in that zeitgeist of classically trained Brits who are on all of our playlists? Well, it's an amazing school because it's a free performing arts school. So it's before drama school. So it's, you know, drama schools are you pay and audition to get in. And this is audition based and and anyone from any background can get in because it's free. So you get a real eclectic group of teenagers, which is just, I think, amazing and the best environment to be making art in because you're, you've got kids from South London and some girls of, I remember girls coming down from Birmingham and all different ethnicities and religions and like just types of people that are allowed to be there based off of their merit and their talent. And they're selected because they're like an eclectic group of interesting teenagers who for some reason are, did a great audition or seem like an interesting character or open. And it was just the most fun environment to, to be in after coming from school where It was very traditional and if you don't fit in, as you know, there's like a formula sometimes and if you don't fit into that, you can either start 
failing, you know, not doing it right and then feeling like, oh, I'm not good at this and I'm not academic. And Whereas you might just need to learn in a different way and flourish in a different environment. And I think a lot of us came to this school and it was, I mean, very typically um, performing arts. Like there'd be people cartwheeling through the reception, <laughs> like, whoa, there's like dancers running in leg warmers and like people singing in the canteen and there's like little black box rooms for making theatre and very serious oh very serious and and then dance shows and I mean I just lapped it up I was coming from northwest London to south London which was like a really long train journey and I asked my parents if I could go to the open night and they let me go and they tell me now they're like we were placating you really we were like sure we'll take you but there's no way we're gonna like she's gonna be traveling to south London every day on the train it's like so far away and then they got there and they were really impressed by the school. So they let me audition and, and, and then go. Yeah, it was just this whole new environment, really exciting, freeing. We were kind of treated more like adults than we had been before, where you start to take on your own responsibility. And that, I think, can be really, for me, worked really well. And I just wanted to be there from the beginning of the day till like the last hour until we were like kicked out. It was like, you've got to go home. Everyone's left we're turning the lights out I did have friends there as well so you know I think that like I just have such good memories of being in that kind of environment you've got the chops you've got the acting chops the the singing chops and you can do all these different genres and within the genres you can do comedy and drama and and even musically you you've changed so do you think that comes from your training or just your interest? Where does that flexibility in your art come from? I do really always feel pleased that I did theatre instead of music at the Brit School because I think me going into theatre like unlocked a level of comfort in me and I think it just explains my songwriting uh, after like Made of Bricks, so much storytelling. And I'd just been like writing plays and doing monologues and putting on, you know, I, I think that that made me want to tell all these stories. And I think it influenced my songwriting um, in a less traditional way. And so I was always really glad that I went down that route because I think it it just got me so comfortable that if I'd have gone down just music, I think I wouldn't have unlocked myself as an actor in a way that I did from going to that school and and just going through all these uncomfortable things and then loving them and wanting to do them all the time, you know. So, yeah, I definitely think the Brit School had a huge impact on me. When you write, do you come from a place of anguish or joy or where, where do you find your creativity stem from? Is it is it personal experiences or are you observing the world? I think about this a lot. I think about my process a lot. Part of the process is thinking about the process and I can get very serious about it. And it's music is a form of expression. It, like it's my therapy and I couldn't, I'd be dead without it. And I do think it's like gotten me through some of the worst experiences I've had in my life. And, and then I also love to just come back to the real simple thing about music. It's that it's really fun. And like, that's why I started playing because I would just tinkle about on the piano and I was like, I like this. And I'd like start writing songs about my friends when I was like 12. And, and then I did my first gig, which I was terrified to do. Um, but I had a broken foot at the time and I'd been, been rejected from university and drama schools. Mm. And I was just like, okay, I'm really scared, but I'm also just so bored. I work in like a chicken shop 
And I just, being scared is more interesting than being bored. So fuck it, I'll just go for it. I did my first gig and I was like, I love this. This is so fun. <laughs> I definitely want to do this again. And yeah, so I, I like going through the, the deep personal things and then also reminding myself like, you do this because you really like it and it's really fun to do. It's a balance, you know, because if you get too heady and too serious, you can get too bogged down with that. And I think that like reminding yourself like, dancing, running around, playing. It's all like play and it's, it's really important to like connect with it in a very like childlike way sometimes. Like, you know this because you like it. But you're also an activist. I know that, that for our listeners who, who may not know Pussy Riot, they know Putin and they know <laughs> Russian politics. And the fact that you stood up for these women who needed a voice and were incarcerated for, for their activism. Yeah. God, and you stood crazy. up for them. So tell our young <laughs> audience who Pussy Riot is. For those that don't know, they will all go check it out. But, yeah. but what inspired you to say these women need me to be their advocate and their ally? So I remember seeing it online through, um, I think, J.D. Sampson, who was in the band La Tigra. And there was just a few people posting about this band, this like... They were a band and sort of an art, very artistic band in Russia. And they were doing performing and they were kind of, you know, performing against the government, like speaking out against the government and making protest performances in churches and things like that. And they got arrested, yeah, and put away. I just wanted to do something because that's what I do. And imagine if I was arrested for doing that and put away for a serious amount of time they're also really cool and they've done loads of cool artwork and I wrote a song actually called Free My Pussy that was about that and it's a really fun song to play live and it's always been important to my mum brought me up to stand up for what I believe in and I have two sisters we were very loud like feminine uh, opinionated household Bless my dad, who is <laughs> very supportive and a lot quieter than all the women house. <laughs> yeah, I think like, you know, I really like going back to that thing I said before when I sort of noticed my audience change from 100 capacity rooms to 3000. And I just looked out and thought, oh, God, what do I say to all these people? And I have literally I have a platform. I'm standing on a stage and that feels like a responsibility. Um and so I like to use my voice and, and if I can be, do some good and do some serious good with this fun, playful thing that I get to do, like, I think it's important to do that. When you take on the media, mm. you mentioned earlier about them saying to this or to that, yeah. it, it must be soul crushing, but also maddening when there's this archetype of what a feminine performer is supposed to look like. And you are like almost the anti-Britney, not in a negative way, but your music stands on its own. You don't have to be theatrical and, and do a choreographed dance for your audience to fall in love with you. So is that hard when they try to make you this picturesque of what they assume a female rock star is supposed to be when you want to be different? Yeah, I think there's been it's so much amazing activism done in the past few years to sort of broaden those horizons a bit that a lot of people are saying we need more space for all different types of people and like I love seeing that and I'm like oh it's so amazing to see that it's kind of healing for me to see that and what a great moment for people to be able to to do this and fight to change these things I think it's amazing but yeah going through it definitely I mean it still exists in so many places on the internet but it's one of those things where 
again, I think in the moment I get very stubborn, fuck you. I realized it's important to not listen to those things and to stand up for yourself so that you, then you're kind of standing up for other people too. But it's definitely affected me later in life where it still makes me emotional thinking about it now because I know it's affected me. And I have one thing I realized in the last couple of years, I immediately expect someone to like dislike me if they know who I am or know what my music, I'm like, oh, they probably don't like me. Like they don't like me. They think I'm an idiot. They think, And it's just because of what a public, like either comments or media things have said about me. I'm like, oh, they think I'm stupid. They think I'm this thing. They think I'm the things that have been said about me in the media because like who wouldn't? And, and I didn't realize that until a couple of years ago that I'm like, God, I'm still carrying that chip on my shoulder and assuming that people think I'm stupid or silly or like a dumb teenage girl or I honestly didn't even realize it because it just kind of comes up as being like, they don't like me. They probably don't like me. And yeah, and I realized that and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm still carrying that around. I just assume that people don't like me. Which is ironic because I know that you are such an advocate for mental health and at a time suffer from anxiety. So what is that like to be a performer? And how does that translate for concerts or anything live? Anxiety is so annoying. (laughs) And so I have OCD and anxiety. How do you know the best thing is on stage is the freest I ever feel. So like one thing you have to do as a performer is learn to make your stage your home and kind of claim the space because otherwise you feel like the stage is going to eat you and you're like, what am I doing here? (laughs) This is so weird. And it can get, you feel self-conscious. And going onto those bigger stages, I realized, oh, I don't feel like me in these spaces. And And that's a really fun thing about performing too is that, performance is once you realize much like learning an instrument or writing a song it's a skill you can develop and like constantly be like tuning and getting better at and exploring and doing different things and one thing that made me realize that was I was I I started an American tour for my second record and on the first night I broke my foot and I was like I had to suddenly deal with the audience in a different way. And I was so nervous about that. But then I kind of had it down by the end. I thought I was a comedian. I was like telling jokes and talking. But they were probably so (laughs) empathetic that you're like physically there, partially immobile. And you can kind of, you can turn anything into a bit, you know, you can kind of make it like a little moment and the audience like laughing. and, And I was like, oh, this is fun. It's a different way of interacting. And so then I sort of felt like, oh, you shouldn't lean on, one crutch too heavily like because things can change and as I change I'll things will just be different so let me I just think I've been in so many situations too I've done acoustic gigs in a car park with no microphone and I've done gigs at a festival where there's like a punk band from the 70s headlining and there's just a group of men throwing bottles of piss at you and you're like (laughs) okay this is happening like I just have to finish this set (laughs) I feel like I've dealt with so many different types of shows that I've I've gotten so confident and I can be a wreck during the day I can be like the last thing I want to do is get on stage I feel disgusting because I'm on tour so I'm just showering in a venue which is just gross like who's been in here who's done things in here that smells there's dirt there's bed bugs there's puke on my pillow (laughs) like my clothes stink I can't scrub the dirt off my face at this point I just am dirt like I feel like I want to go home a lot like I don't want anyone to look at me you're about to get a boost of adrenaline and right before that happens you start feeling so sleepy you're like I'm not gonna be able to do the show tonight 
I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. I don't know how this is going to happen. Every time. It's a bit like getting your period where yeah. every month you're like, why am I feeling so emotional? And why am I in this weird mood? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Still kind of a shock every month. And it's like every night I'd be like, guys, it's not going to happen tonight. I'm just so tired. I'm about to fall asleep. And then I'm like, yeah, five <laughs> seconds later. Um, and yeah, being, I think I have honed the skill of like owning the stage and make it's like, this is my house for this hour and a half. This is my house and we're going to do it my way. But one thing that helps me with the anxiety, cause, cause I do get running anxiety at night is when my brain just like, will just start torturing myself. And I just need like people around me that are very grounding. Like my band are really great. I started thinking, my mum, she used to do the night shift as a nurse. And I started thinking, oh, you don't need to feel guilty. You know, all this guilt that I'm carrying around, it's actually, it's okay. I'm on the night shift. I start work, you know, we sound check at like five and then I do a show and then it's okay that my brain is racing. And instead of trying to force yourself to sleep because you need the energy and you're worried about everything that could go wrong if you don't get enough sleep, just stay up till three until you start to feel tired and just sit there and it'll come and then like accept this is a different way of living and you, you just need to put things in place to help it. I'm glad um, you said that because we've we've noticed with the pandemic so many kids are oh, so anxious. I bet. Everything's out of their control. Uh, yeah, yeah, I bet. And it's and I've noticed that too with things like that, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, like they've been put under a lot of pressure in the pandemic and that need for control can it can go one of two ways, right? It can you can find something that that helps you or you can find something that's unhealthy that you think is helping you that isn't I'm actually I'm vegan and I became a vegetarian because of my OCD which made me realize oh this is actually something that could be dangerous because it's affected my diet basically I I got a bunny rabbit called Fluffy who actually just died last uh, this year she was 15 years old she lived very good life but she lived an amazing long life and um when I got her, I just sort of flippantly got a little bunny rabbit because I thought bunnies are so cute. This will be great. And then I was like, oh my God, she's my child. She's got such a personality. She's incredible. Totally underestimated this little bunny rabbit. And then I became really dependent on her and all my anxiety like went into her. And it's when I first realized I had OCD because I had all these rules about things I had to do and check on her. And like, it just became the main thing in my life. I was leaving the house and then going, oh, I've got to go back. I've got to do this. Do you have like rituals and things that you, things I, do, do, I, do, I, things I knew I had done and I have to close this gate and I have to like fold this thing. And well, I guess dangerous, I, I guess dangerous is the right word. Cause sometimes you're doing things and you're like, I've stopped my car and I'm getting out of the car in the middle of the street. And luckily there's no one around, but like, what am I doing? Yeah, I started to understand it then. And I, and so she had an operation and they said it's risky because she's so small. And I was like, oh God, okay. And then everything became more important because if I didn't do them, she wouldn't make it through the operation. And, and it wasn't even worth the risk. I was like, well, it's probably not true. That's obviously crazy, but it's not worth the risk. Just do it. <laughs> and the next morning I woke up and I was vegetarian from then on. And I just said... I made a deal, like a magical deal with the universe where I said, if I don't eat any animals, she'll be fine. It ended up being a positive thing for me because I do love animals and it turned into rather than this OCD thing, a passion, you know, once I suddenly realized I really don't want to eat animals. Like it made me understand the power in the OCD and how it made a big choice for me. And I thought if I'd picked, if my brain had had a different argument the night before, I'd picked something that wasn't 
just going vegetarian? Like, what would I be doing to submit to it? And so that was the beginning of my journey of going, okay, I need to control this thing instead of letting it control me. It'll still flare up. Like the anxiety is, is more of a daily thing, unfortunately. And uh, the OCD flares up. So if I'm stressed, the OCD comes in and I still do a little bit of a deal with it where I'm like, all right, I'll give you three checks of this thing. And that's it. I'm like, I need to be controlling the deals and not letting my OCD just go wild and do as many things as it wants. It's like, now I know in reality, these things are not going to affect the outcome, but like, it makes me feel better to do them. Okay. So you can have three of them today and you can have them when you're really stressed out. You can have a couple of them and then they won't be allowed to be huge ones or ones that could harm you, but you can have a couple if that makes sense. It makes sense. In your industry, because it's so outwardly facing, you've probably seen a lot of men and women who've struggled with eating disorders just because yeah. of the photographs and magazine covers. Has and been, drugs and alcohol too is a big one in music. So has that been hard to, to see people who, like you have your anxiety and OCD in check? Is it hard when you see people that don't have drugs and alcohol or yeah. an eating disorder in check? Yes, it is really hard. There's a saying, you can bring a horse to water and you can't make it drink. I can try, if there's things I think that could like help somebody, I can do that. But it's a really difficult thing to navigate when it's somebody else's issue because you've got to just tread so sensitively and so carefully. And some people are just not ready to deal with something. Like, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you think, oh, when I was really struggling, if someone had said like, this blunt thing or told me something and maybe that would have helped me, but it doesn't necessarily help everybody. So you can't, you can't like save people, I guess, is the thing to realize, which is difficult. You kind of have to let people, I don't know. It's like selecting things that you might say that you're like, I'm going to throw somebody a branch and like they take it. Great. They don't, I can't force them to take that branch because everybody's going at a different pace, but like I can throw the branch. I can always throw the branch and it's fine if they don't take it. And I think for a while I was like, take the fucking branch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you went from being on a stage and your platform to a television set all, all over the globe. And and tell our audience who is young about Glow because oh. suddenly you're in their living room. You're on their gadget. And what was that like to go from oh being God, on a stage Glow. with a guitar and suddenly you're in a, you know, a wrestling ring. You're wrestling. <laughs> what was that like? It was amazing. It was one of the best things that's ever happened. I w- I'd gone through hell in the music industry. Actually, I just moved home. I moved from LA to London and gave up my apartment and didn't even know how I was going to take care of my dog because my music manager had stolen all of my money and I was just run out of, I had run out of money. So I kind of thought, I am just soft and stupid and I don't have any skills that really help me in this moment. And what do I do? Should I be, I need some more, something more stable and I can't keep going in this just godforsaken industry that like, but then at the same time I was depressed because I knew I was going to keep going. And I just felt like, why are you doing this? Like you're being kicked when you're down. Like no one's even really saying, get up. We really want you to get up. It's like, why are you bothering to carry on when you're not really being supported and there doesn't seem to be a huge audience behind you, like champion, you know, you can feel really low and like when you're not the 
like in the hottest moment of your career, like, why are you carrying on? And I remember watching an interview with Patty Smith that was really important for me to see where she said, sometimes your career is, you're like the number one hot thing. She did not, this is a complete misquote, but she was like, everybody cares about the record you're putting out. And sometimes you're putting out a poetry book that no one's ever going to read. And that's being an artist. And you've got to kind of not understand it's going to be all these ups and downs. And I always think about that. And it's really helpful that she said that. I moved home. I sort of gave up, moved home and then auditioned and got glow. And I was like, I've literally just left LA and said goodbye to everyone. And one month later, I was like, hey guys, I'm, I'm back. back. Surprise. <laughs> I'm surprised. Sorry. False um, alarm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just given this insane scenario that was me in a wrestling ring with 15 women who are just incredible and they're so badass and like so inspiring so talented incredible actresses like so funny just a bunch of clowns just doing bits constantly and then we were all so terrified of learning how to wrestle so we were doing something we were all kind of scared of and learning that together and like encouraging each other and being like if someone like did a back bump and like you know did that what something they were really scared of everyone's like yes (laughs) yes jackie and we're all like championing. And if someone can't do it, I don't know. It was just the most incredible healing experience I could have ever had because you couldn't write that, you know, getting in the ring with Chavo Guerrero, who is like Mexican wrestling royalty, who's such a bro in so many ways and is also somehow the perfect guy to be teaching us wrestling because body parts were just wrestling tools. And, you, you know, you'd be in his crotch and like <laughs> under his arm. And it was like never anything else than just learning a wrestling move because he learned to walk in a ring and he was so encouraging and so sweet and like like just this guy who just is just not like I don't know he just learned so much from us and we learned so much from him and just have so much love for each other and it, but it, you just couldn't have picked a more bizarre situation to kind of be in after all of that and and it helped me so much like it really healed me it's a oh. metaphor for what you're doing now, I think, <laughs> because you're fearless and you have written your own musical. You're going to star in your own musical and you're going to be <laughs> on Broadway. So I know you've been working on this for over a decade, 11 years to be exact, but who's years. counting? Um, <laughs> tell our audience what that's like to, to create something from scratch and know that it's coming to fruition. Well, it... So Andy Blankenbuehler, who is the choreographer of Hamilton, asked me and lots of different musicals asked me to have dinner with him in 2010 because he was wanting to make a musical with all my music. And I was just kind of like, okay, sure, I'll take a dinner. And we had dinner and he told me this amazing story that he was in, you know, that that was like the, the story of this musical. And basically he'd been choreographing to a playlist and then it just, he whittled it down and it was suddenly just all my songs. And so it started as me when I was, whenever I was in New York, we'd get together and we'd kind of talk through these characters and this story and I'd go away and maybe write something or, you know, and it, and then he got quite busy because he made Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) And won a few Tonys. Yeah. Won a few Tonys and, uh, you know, he just worked on loads of other stuff and I was just touring and then doing glow. And in 2018, we kind of, it started to become more, okay, we're going to stage act one and it's being produced and it's kind of becoming this real thing. And it's the scariest thing I've ever worked on 
where even with Glow, which I was learning to wrestle, which was scary, but something about this musical, I was having like stress nightmares, which I've never experienced. I was waking up at 4am crying and I was like, this is so crazy. I've never experienced this kind of anxiety about work. I guess when I was doing Glow, it was me and a bunch of other women who didn't know how to wrestle. We were in it together, you know, we were like failing together and learning together. And I was suddenly like with Broadway skilled performers who work six days a week. They do a matinee and a show and they learn a new show in the morning and they were just flying around the room around me. And I just was just so out of my depth of comfort. But they're flying to your music. I know. And that's the other thing. I was like, ah, ah, ah. and then ah, I feel like I can't move. I can't walk. I can't be myself. And and so it was like, I've had this thought again about when I had to learn to own a stage. And it's like a whole new stage for me to learn to be comfortable in and, and own the space where I, and fit into this big, group that are choreographed you know that's so new to me so yeah the work first workshop was really scary but um we just did another workshop actually I just got back from one and I saw the theater the MCC theater is where it's gonna be and I I went in there I was so nervous to see the room but when I got in there I was like yes I was like this I feel like I can do this and it was the first time I called Margaret and I was like Margaret I feel like I can do it for the first time (laughs) and it just kind of felt like you know I was in a room where they were they were doing rehearsal for another show. So the lights were down and the stage was lit. And I was like, I can be on stage. I do this. This kind of feels like a gig room. I can do this. And so I'm really, yeah, I'm so excited and and nervous, but it's such an amazing thing to work with Andy Blankenbuehler too. It's such an honor to work with him. He's, he's so inspired. He's one of the most inspired people I've ever been around where his energy level is always here, you know, and like I love working with people that aren't self-conscious about throwing out ideas because it frees the whole room to just try anything. And he's really like that. And watching him choreograph was like watching someone paint with human beings. And I've just never been around dance. So it's really new for me and, and yeah, really inspiring. So I feel excited. I, I feel like I'm starting a new chapter of, of my life in a way. And also it's healing to go back to the thing about the media and like the things that people have said about me and how I've always felt a bit of an outsider from the music industry. And I don't feel like I was taken very seriously to, to be like taken seriously by such an incredible artist who's like based this whole musical off my music. And it's so professional people kind of taking me seriously and being respectful of me. I know that sounds like coming out of a, an abusive relationship or something you're like wow they actually like you know didn't just slag me off to my face it's crazy they like what I do and they tell me and I feel respected in the workplace but the music industry is the opposite of that it is somewhere where it's considered normal to be drunk in the workplace it's, it's totally unregulated it's toxic almost. it's very toxic and it needs changing lots of people get abused in the music industry in lots of different ways and they don't respond to it and I don't know why they think they don't have to but it's really embarrassing and cringy I think to be associated with an industry that doesn't have a response really to the Me Too movement or to like like fake kind of responses to these like important moments in history and they don't do anything to change it and they had no response to all these artists in the pandemic. They didn't do anything. They 
continue to profit. They've they've defined the industry on their terms. Spotify, like streaming services, social media, they've defined all of that so that they're actually profiting now, making loads of money. They made very little changes. It's like very old structures. It feels very old fashioned. And then they've done nothing to support artists in this pandemic where like many like sort of mid to low level, like I'm not talking about huge pop stars who are making lots of money through streaming, even though they're still not making what they should earn. Um, but the people that like can't pay rent off of their recorded works when they get mm. millions of streams, that's that's wrong. That's morally wrong. Like we should earn from our recorded works. You shouldn't be having to work seven jobs when you're not on tour. Um, you should earn from your your recorded works. Like it's not sustainable and it's actually, it's not inclusive because what does someone do if they have mental health problems or physical health problems and they can't tour or touring is really bad for their, you know, it makes them depressed or suicidal or have breakdowns like well yeah if they literally can't get around what if someone's in a wheelchair like what is the industry doing to support these people um nothing so I always have to call out the music industry when I can because I think it's old-fashioned outdated and embarrassing and wrong and it needs to change it just makes it even more exciting for me to be in an industry where I see people actually making effort responding, having difficult conversations and treating people with respect in the workplace. Like that's where I want to be. So I'm really excited to be, to be doing this project with one of the greatest artists I've ever had the privilege of working with. So my last question for you is I want you to picture one of your fans, an outsider, somebody struggling with their sexual identity or somebody dealing with OCD and, and mental health. And like you they need to take risks or like you, they need to step out of their comfort zone. Mm. Like you, they need to be throwing stones at a system that's outdated and misogynistic and wrong. What advice would you give that outsider to be as bold as you are today? It's all about your gut and trust. And you have to build a relationship with yourself and learn to trust yourself. Because I have this feeling that all the times in my life where I've made mistakes or, you know, things have gone wrong or I've made a wrong decision or I look back on and I think they were mistakes. I feel like in my gut, I had a feeling, I'm not sure about that person or how do I, you know, is this making me really happy? Or, And I feel like so many times we think with our heads and like, I don't trust my head, but I do trust my gut. And I try so much to like move forward with going listen to my gut listen to my gut like listen to the gut don't trust the head the head is a mess the head is where my OCD and anxiety kind of run the ship sometimes and my self-doubt and I'm self-conscious and I'm thinking I'm comparing and I'm this like my gut like that is where I just know things for a reason I can't even explain or I have a feeling I don't know why it makes me think of like my ancestors or like my heritage and witches and like just instinct is so important and your head can mess you up and so I think like build that relationship with yourself and your gut and like your truth and like sometimes you have to ignore your head a little bit because it can it can mess you up and you will meet like people that you connect with it's it's really exciting and and even if you feel like you haven't yet or you you're not going to like you will you're going to meet amazing people who you're just going to laugh with till you cry and like just 
have met, make memories with and like see sunsets with. And, you know, like if you feel lonely, like trust that like eventually you're going to meet some people that you connect with that can change your life in a great way and, and make really difficult things like worth getting through. Like if I think about those worst times, you know, the most important people were the, the girls in my band who we just laughed so much. Like we've got great memories from the worst touring times and when everything was going tits up, we still shined with each other. So yeah, like trust your gut and trust yourself and and it can take a bit of work to do that, especially if you feel like you've been hurt or damaged, like it, it needs a bit of repair and um, that might just take time. So you have to have patience. So yeah, I think that would be my advice is like, even if things aren't great right now, and there will be great moments to come. Much like I had walked out onto the stage and thought, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, work on it. Like, own that, own your stage. Like, this is your stage. Your life is your stage. Like, it, you're going to feel weird about it sometimes, but it's still your stage. So you're just going to have to, like, claim your stage and just, just think, yeah, fuck everyone. Fuck everyone else sometimes. I'm so grateful to our guest, Kate Nash, for bravely sharing her struggles and her triumphs with all of us. My dear listeners, may each of us extend a helping hand to those in need. May we use our talents to create a better, more accepting world. And in Kate's honor, may each of us own our own stage. That concludes our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Aaron Gruwell. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Martin-Hall and Rob Falk. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told. <laughs>